Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Stellenbosch in South Africa is Professor Risha Pretorius, who is a physiologist, head of department, and distinguished research professor in the Physiological Sciences Department at Stellenbosch University. She's also an honorary professor with the University of Liverpool, and additionally, she is managing director of BioCode Technologies. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me on your show. Prof. Pretorius, the Department of Physiological Sciences undertakes investigative research to improve the understanding of health challenges facing South Africa. It also explores a variety of different disease states and aspects of regenerative medicine, and with the perspective of being able to gain a a greater understanding of underlying mechanisms that drive the onset of uh, pathophysiological states, with the end goal of designing novel therapeutic interventions. I know that you've got a number of different research groups and streams at the university from uh, cancer, neuro research, muscle research, cardiometabolic research, and hemorrhology and the coagulation group, which focuses on blood coagulation and circulatory inflammatory markers. Please, can you share a few of the successes in some of the research areas that you've been involved with? Thank you for that question. Yes, we are a very diverse department within the Faculty of Science, and we focus on a variety of diseases and methodologies that we employ to study various conditions and to obviously find also solutions for it. We focus within the department uh, on cancer research with Professor Anna-Mart Engelbrecht. She's a renowned researcher in our department. She's been working on cancer and looking at various uh, molecules to be able to treat cancer using cell culture models. Uh, She's also with me in Biocode Technologies, which is one of the spin-out companies from our department and our faculty. Then there is also Professor Ben Lewis. He's also very well known for his research um, on the, the brain. And he looks at Alzheimer's and pathophysiological processes associated with various mechanisms, physiological mechanisms. Then we have a Sarchi chair, uh, Professor Kathy Myberg, uh, in our department, and she's also well known for her regenerative muscle research. And then my research focuses on blood and blood-related diseases and of late COVID and long COVID. And we focus on getting blood from patients and analyzing blood samples that we receive from patients and from clinicians. When you talk about COVID, the repercussions of the disease have really been felt in every sphere of society, uh, whether it's from an economic point of view, whether it's from a social point of view, and obviously health-wise. Some people who contracted COVID had the misfortune of experiencing long COVID, and the symptoms include fatigue, shortness of breath, cognitive dysfunction. Within your study, what was the motivation behind establishing a, a long COVID registry for South Africa? 
The, the, the research started out actually just after the pandemic hit South Africa when we were looking at acute COVID. So during the acute phase, quite early in the pandemic, I started working with various clinicians from the Mediclinic at Stellenbosch, in particular Dr. Yaku Lobsche. Um, he looked at patients, cared for patients in the ICU. And quite soon after the first patients arrived, he was seeing uh, significant clotting pathologies. At that stage, it was not really seen as one of the pathologies. Everyone was still thinking it is purely a pneumonia. At that stage, um, people were also wondering if he was treating, if he were treating his patients correctly with anticoagulants. It soon became clear that it was actually a, a clotting disease. And in the early stages, when we received blood samples from him, we, uh, we immediately got ethics approval from our ethics committee at the university, and we started looking at clotting. Why we started looking at clotting was the simple answers. I've been working with him on diabetes for a number of years, and since probably 20 uh, 2004 already, I think, uh, I was looking at clotting pathologies in, in a variety of diseases. So it was just uh, quite a, a easy shift from our normal day-to-day -day research procedures to go into, uh, into acute COVID. Unfortunately, eight months or so after our initial research endeavors, we started getting um, reports from our overseas colleagues and researchers that there is something like long COVID. And uh, immediately with that happening, I was hearing about it in South Africa as well. And we started seeing patients coming to us with long COVID. We then also obviously looked at, at their blood samples and found that the clotting pathology that we noted in the acute phase was also present in these patient population. We, we then started looking further, collecting more and more samples. Dr. Jakub Lobsch himself, his practice then were inundated with individuals that contracted COVID, they had the acute COVID, they they were not infective anymore. But at that stage, three months, four months, six months, eight months after they had the, the acute disease, they were still complaining about prolonged symptoms that were not present before they had the acute event. The brain fog, the, the shortness of breath, the post-exertional malaise that people complain about. And I must say, it's, uh, to on that point, just to, to make it clear, long COVID is the fatigue and the brain fog that that people are complaining about. It's not just your general fatigue. You are, you've had a hard day's work. Um, if you've done some exercise, now you need to go to, to bed to rest. The next day you're fine again. That's not the type of fatigue we're talking about. It's a prolonged, severe fatigue that no amount of bed rest, uh, people feel better. They are severely ill. And to the extent that some of the, the patients are bedridden, cannot get out of bed. And we now in the third year after the pandemic, we have long COVID sufferers globally that contracted the acute um, disease in the early days of the pandemic. So three years onwards, 
some people still have long COVID. So it's a chronic disease with persistent symptoms. And in our hands, if we look at the blood samples, we note that it is a clotting pathology, significant clotting pathology present in the, in, in the patient's blood. And that results in a widespread vascular damage. And we believe that is why the, the patients suffer from these very different uh, symptoms that complain about. Thanks for sharing the symptoms, the pathologies, and also the fact that you could have contracted it three years ago and you are still going to be feeling latent effects if you are, have the misfortune of, of experiencing long COVID. Given what you know now, are you looking at uh, being able to create treatments for long COVID? The first important thing that we need to do is to have proper diagnostics. So quite early on, when I first have my had my first patients in the lab coming in with, with blood clotting pathologies, we noted clotting in, in the long COVID patients and we I realized that this might probably be a diagnostic. We patented the method for identifying microclots in blood from patients with long COVID. And we are working on that currently, the diagnostics to, to, to have it as a general pathology test in pathology labs. Initially, it was a laboratory research methodology where we used fluorescence microscopes. Now, one would think that all pathology labs would have such microscopes, but unfortunately, they don't. So um, at the early in the early stages, it was just a, a, a research method. Currently, there are a few uh, groups and clinics overseas that use the mi microscope method as a method to identify microclots and then to, to use it as a diagnostic. We have just, um, I'm actually busy with the, the paper, finalizing the paper. We've just developed a method to detect microclots in blood samples using a flow cytometer. So while that is of importance, all of the pathology laboratories would have a flow cytometer where they do the regular tests. So, so the, the, the diagnostics is crucial because you cannot treat if you don't diagnose first. But before even thinking about treatment, there needs to be clinical trials run. And uh, we are working with a few groups, research groups globally that are planning research trials to look at treating the clotting pathology in um the long COVID. We work, as I mentioned, together with Dr. Jakub Lobscher. We are also about to publish a uh, paper where we traced 91 of his patients before they, they got treatment for clotting pathology at his practice, and we followed them until they were healthy again. And we looked at self-reported symptoms and whether they report that they're feeling better or that they are completely healed. We we had a, We've got like a a checklist of um, uh, symptoms that, that people fill in on our informed consent. And we are very happy to report that with this, this uh, data that we have, it seems that a significant number of individuals have become better after treating the clotting pathology that, uh, that may be central in all of the symptoms. But obviously, it's clinician-initiated treatment regimes. For that to become mainstream treatment, we will need to have various trial data that needs to be looked at to eventually become mainstream. So unfortunately, this is not a fast process, never uh, for, for any type of disease. 
You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Risha Pretorius. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. One of the things that you mentioned is biocode technologies as being part of the Stellenbosch University's group of, of companies as a spin-off. What is its purpose? So biocode technologies uh, were started in probably 2019, after we were doing collaborative research myself, Professor Anamat Engelbrecht from the Cancer Group, as well as Professor Willy Pierold, who is an engineer. And we were looking at um, using the physiological sciences as a, as a backbone to identify molecules that might be of inflammatory nature and if we have identified it, how can we use the, 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 the molecules that are present in blood uh, and trace it and track it with using point-of-care diagnostics developed by our engineers? So BioCode began when we, we found a molecule, serum amyloid A, which is significantly upregulated in all inflammatory conditions, but can be a thousand times upregulated in cancer. And serum amyloid A was therefore a perfect molecule to study as an acute phase and a chronic inflammatory molecule. And biotechnologies, we patented the, the, the process and biotechnologies then were the vehicle for us to, um, to, to make these point of care uh, possible to, to and develop that. And we have developed a little lateral flow assay for those of you that have done thousands of, of um, COVID tests, it's a little strip where you put a drop of blood and you see little stripes. That's a lateral flow assay. So we all know, we're familiar with the, with, with COVID tests. For BioCode, our first product is a is the serum amyloid A test. That's the LFA test. We are nearly done with our preliminary results. It will be available soon. Now, the idea with BioCode, behind BioCode is... We will develop these type of um, analysis vehicles and point of care systems uh, to be used. First of all, in South Africa, where we would want to have everyone able, enabled to test whether they have got inflammation in, in, in their bodies. We wanted to do it cheaply so that it can be available for everyone. And thirdly, we wanted to have a place for our students to go and have a, a, a first experience with industry. And the, 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 the two students that are currently, that, or they were students, but they are now currently employed in biotechnologies is Esti Berger. She is our engineer, our um, engineer that studied under myself and Professor Willy Pierold. She's our CEO. And then there's our second student that was a student from my group, Simone Turner. She is our physiologist. So those two are driving biocode. Without them, we would not have a company. And uh, we are very, very happy to say that the, the patent for, for long COVID is also placed in the hands of biocode. Biocode has got a um, the, the right to to use the patent and to license the patent f to anyone globally that would want to use the method. Biocode then assists the, the companies or the clinics to use it and to set up the laboratories. 
It sounds incredibly exciting. And I also think the ability for academic institutions to commercialize their innovations contributes to the sustainability as well as profitability of these innovations and discoveries. What are your views of academia and industry? Well, I think the two cannot be separated. And uh, if, if we are in academia and we have got a possibility to, 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 to find new molecules, to find new avenues to commercialize our endeavors, our research endeavors, then, then we should absolutely do so. We have got in, in a, in an institution like Stellenbosch University, we've got state of the art equipment to play around with, to, to, to look into uh, possibilities to commercialize. We've got a wonderful team of uh, people in, in WIFIS, our tech transfer office. They just are willing and always available for any researchers starting off with uh, trying to find if there's anything that they can commercialize. They will take you by the hand. They will lead you through all the processes. And I must say, uh, it's a daunting task if you're in a laboratory and you you, you find you found something and you think it might have commercial potential. It might be able to be patentable. Um, it's a daunting task to know where to start. But luckily, Stellenbosch is well-placed because we've got this whole team of, of people surrounding us that we don't have to worry about the legal issues. Where would you go to find a patent attorney? You don't have to worry about that. And that is that is what made the endeavors for us easy because we had Anita Nell, who's the head of the of, of Inwifis, who just takes you by the hand and leads you with the processes. And I think that is, that's important. And, and that, that is why we were lucky. We were also very lucky um, that if, uh, if it wasn't for the university uh, funding processes and the, 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 uh, the, the UTF, the University Technology Fund that funded Biocode, we would not have had a company. So there's a lot of things that should fall in place before you, you have it. But luckily, we, uh, we, we, we re realize that. You've got all of these resources at your disposal because literally universities cater for absolutely every single discipline that if you work the system correctly, that you can create all of these wonderful innovations, patents and keep growing. Absolutely. And, and that is what is fantastic. And uh, if it wasn't for all those structures that we had in place it would have been a significant problem for us to to because you don't know where to start as a researcher you you know you've got your expertise you don't have expertise in in the legal aspects the patents all of those or never mind that, that even to run a company you don't have the the necessary skills but luckily if you've got a technology transfer office it makes it easy We've spoken about your present and achievements that you've made to your field. Where did it all begin for you and what inspired you to pursue physiology? Well, I was always interested uh, in, in structure and function. And I think uh, that from, from pre-grad studies, when I did my BSc, I was interested in structure and function. I've been working with electron microscopes and fluorescence microscopes and flow cytometers all my, my research life. And I think uh, the, the inspiring people that came over my 
my my my path made it possible and uh, just out of the top of my head one of the the first exposures that i had to clotting pathologies was probably in in 2004 when um, an old professor from surgery professor carl france at university of pretoria where i was at that stage came to me and said could i look at clots under an electron microscope for him and uh, he was the first to, to ever use platelet poor plasma to treat diabetic foot um, when he, he, he took the blood from a pa- from patients with diabetes and with severe diabetic foot issues and he isolated the the platelets and the platelet poor plasma and the platelet rich plasma and in that mix you will have growth factors and he actually used that and made like a gel to put on these um uh, the, these areas of 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 uh, severe compromised skin and and diabetic foot ulcers and the, the he treated patients with that and he was the first in the world to do that and he asked me to look at what are what are we what what do we have in this little this gel that I'm putting on on these diabetic foot ulcers, and that's where it all started. The clotting clotting work was actually started from from the first experiments together with him, and then it just went on. Wonderful people coming over my my path. Professor Douglas Cal, he was at that stage from the University of Manchester, is now at Liverpool, who contacted me in. Uh, probably 2011 to say we could work together on on clotting pathology and the causes related to too much iron. Uh, wonderful professor, Professor Bogoslav Lipinski. He was retired and already in his late 80s, a retired professor from Harvard and originally from Poland. And he wrote me a handwritten letter also around about 2011 to say, would I be interested to study changes in red blood cells and fibrinogen, the clotting protein, uh, with him. And we had a wonderful collaboration. I visited him in Poland a few years later when he was nearly in his 90s then. So wonderful people that supported me along my, my path of research. It sounds so pioneering and practical, all of the work that you're doing and how it's been spearheaded by people who are, who are advancing their specific areas of, of the field. You mentioned the role of people in your life. As a woman in science, you've witnessed academic and business applications, um, specifically when you're talking about clotting pathologies and its viability as a career path. We know that the STEM subjects have been cited as being pivotal for jobs of the future. But yet when you look at various reports, it indicates that women are still underrepresented in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics streams. And if they're not part of the subject matter at the beginning of their careers, it's going to exclude them from job opportunities in the future. What do you think needs to be done to help encourage more women and girls to participate in STEM? Because if they do this, it gives them a ticket to the game, well, a ticket to jobs of the future. A very interesting phenomenon that we have been seeing in the Department of Physiological Sciences over the past five, six years is that if we look at our honours component of students, probably 90% of our honours class are not male, they are female. 
And in our department as well, many of our master's degree and, and PhD degree students all indeed female students. Interestingly, this year we only have one male student in our class of 18 students that's doing honours. So I do not think the problem in my environment, I don't think the problem is to, to get the, the females to go into postgrad studies. I think the a more prominent dilemma that we are sitting with is to keep them there after they complete a master's, uh, honors a master's or a PhD. So the training is not the issue. We do have the females in the various disciplines. I think in my discipline in particular, I think the, the main issue is that we must get them from, from the laboratory and from the training institutions into places where they can have a, a job and where they can progress in a field where they are capable of, of making a significant contribution. That is exactly why we initially started Bioco Technologies. As I mentioned, I've got two females in charge in Biocode, and um, they're running the show. And they are young, they are under 30, and they're doing fabulous jobs. I think we just need to give them opportunities. Um, they've got the they've got the science background. There's nothing wrong with their qualifications, but we must just give them opportunities to to work and uh, employ them and give them the benefit of the doubt. They are good. We just need to give them the opportunities. So the plan with Biocode is once we are more established, we will hopefully have a pipeline for students, not only females, males as well if they're good. We can have a pipeline where we can uh, provide Biocode with people to work in, in the company, to pay them proper salaries, and then hopefully then to send them out into more different places, other type of work opportunities. One of the important things that we see is a significant dilemma, but we, we've known that for, for so many years, females and males. If one is just leaving a institution, if you've got a master's or a PhD even, the first thing that everyone is asking, where are the, you know, where have you worked before? What have you done? If we don't have those opportunities, you know, then it's fruitless to try to, 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 to run uh, companies, you know, with, with people that have got experience. You have to have begin somewhere. And hopefully places like Bioco Technologies will give a CV opportunity if it's just for six months or a year, and then they can move on to other companies to show that they have some work experience. I think that that's probably one of the more important opportunities of Biocode is providing that work experience and providing the feeding ground and throughput from academia through to industry to gain that experience. Because you're 100% right. You go out onto the job market and the first question is, what is your experience? And it almost nullifies some of the transferable skills that come through from an academic point of view, whether it is about running your research and translating that to being project management, budget management, and all of those factors, it's not seen in the context of, of a business field. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Risha Pretorius. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk.
We are rapidly approaching International Women's Day. In, in fact, it's, it's celebrated annually on the 8th of March as a day to recognize the achievements that women have made in their respective spaces. What are some of the achievements in your field that you'd like to acknowledge that have had an impact on progressing gender equality? I think if we if we look at research in general um, and we look at publications coming out of our field and we we just look at just do a Google search on publications, there there are a lot of females making significant impact in the in the field of STEM and physiological sciences in particular. If if we just look at the various papers and the the the, the demographics and the gender um, distribution of the authors. I think women are doing a fabulous job already. I think we just need to acknowledge them. And I think we need to to put more focus on the work that they do in this environment, because I think if we really break it down into numbers, we will see that that females are indeed uh, the majority of the researchers. Because they are, they you know, they work in the laboratories. They are part of the publications. So I think we must just focus on that and uh, and uh, have a more uh, thank them for what they are doing more. I think it's very important to have that recognition. That's really positive news to hear. The theme for International Women's Day this year is digital innovation and technology for gender equality. And in essence, it's about the role of innovation and technology change and education in the digital era for achieving gender equality as well as the empowerment of women and girls. What are your thoughts about this theme? We will definitely not be able to to go forward in research and in science if we do not have the we do not have a digital component to whatever we do. So, using all of our uh, possible resources and combining research experience, even if you're not in a in, in an environment, you can partner with someone that is in an environment, and I think. That is the important thing that I would want to see happening is if we choose research projects in a university setting or if we uh, are in a situation where someone needs to develop something new or researching something new, always try to find opportunities where you can partner with engineers, with data scientists um, and with other individuals that might bring to your a research endeavor or to whatever you are doing your company as well if it's a young company to try to see how you can pull forces together and do something that's perhaps out of the box for you but for the other person not so much so if we combine forces and uh, use our variety of um, various disciplines and work together I think that is the way that we need to, to, to go forward because sometimes you do think that your research is not necessarily uh, will not have any impact on the digital era but perhaps it just needs someone with a with with that specific talent or that specific background to take it to take your work to a next level. That's such an interesting perspective of collaboration and the idea that we all have our own lenses, but if someone with a different lens looks at your work through their eyes and their perspective, 
they'll be able to extract something completely different, which could then in turn elevate your work. Absolutely. And that's what we have been doing with biotechnologies, combining physiology and engineering, bioengineering. And that has been uh, an excellent recipe for us. Last point on gender equality and uh, our theme here. If there was one thing that you could change to improve gender equality gains for women, what would that be? I think I would want to see companies employing young researchers just out of university, making the space for them uh, in in your company, just giving them a chance. Because I think uh, sometimes someone great could be lost for the you know for companies or for the general global environment if they don't have opportunities. So look for look for young females, show them the opportunities that that you might have within your company. I want to ask you from the opposite viewpoint. So one, yes, absolutely, companies to open opportunities and take on board young researchers, nurture that talent and not let gems be lost. But what do you think we as women can do to make ourselves shine a little bit more brightly so that we're recognized and companies uh, take on board women because of, let's call it personal PR or, or personal brand development? I think one of the important things that you what that that a young female can do is to get a mentor, whether it's another female or whether it's a male, it doesn't matter who it is. Get a mentor that will be able to assist you and that is near to your field and to to give you some guidelines what worked for them. I think that is one of the important things always to learn from someone that's in your same area of expertise. And I think one of the important things is to market yourself. I know it's quite difficult, especially if you are a lab researcher and you're perhaps introverts and you, you don't want to market yourself so much. You want just want to do your work and that's it. But I think look at your CV, look how you present your work that you have done. Um, go for courses if, if you should. And most importantly, go for interview training. I think that is one of the most important things that I have possibly learned um, over the years is, is to have a good interview in a job situation. Know how to present yourself and to sell yourself. And there are lots of courses online, but there are also places where you could just get um, in contact with someone that can train you one-on-one for half an hour online course or so. I think that is extremely important to market what you are and what you can do and to present yourself in such a way that a company would, if it looks at, if the company looks at you, they will just think they cannot not appoint you. Um, so I think that's one of the most important things I have learned is, is good interviews. Great advice. One question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. So whether it is values, faith, particular people, uh, persistence, resilience, in your view, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? Never to give up. I I don't ever give up on anything. I look at what is in front of me. It's easy because I'm a visual person, so I've got a microscope. I cut out all the signal from outside. 
I don't listen necessarily to people people's opinions of what is supposed to be happening in a disease. That's why we discovered microclots. Nobody was looking in the blood as we as we we were looking at the time, and uh, I think that's an important driver of what what I have been doing all of my life, um, listening to to my gut and uh, to just look at the the data in front of me. I don't get distracted easily by what other people say. I want to find out for myself and make my decisions based on what I see on the data, not on predetermined um, things that people have thought it should be or should not be. And if you didn't do that, you couldn't be able to progress and look towards new developments and innovations because we would be tainted from old paradigms. Absolutely. And and old paradigms might uh, really not not be needed when we want to improve our current knowledge on 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 any science facts so i think uh, it's it's the old thing is the is the the earth flat or is it round and um yeah sometimes it's it's very difficult to try to convince people of something new but i think just keep on the data will show at the end, what you have been seeing, and, and that's the important thing, never give up. Power of data, and I love that sentiment of never give up. And I think it was there was a great Winston Churchill quote, which echoes the sentiment of what you've just said. Lastly, as we close out our conversation today, please can you share a few words of inspiration or motivation for International Women's Day with girls and women who are listening to us? If you are a young girl and you're not sure what you want to do, I think the important thing is look at the things that inspire you. Look at the things that make you happy. If if the if you have something that make you happy and you study that, you will never work a day. You will always be playing what in 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 your work endeavors. So find something that just drives you from within, from your passion. And then you will always be happy in your career. Great words. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks again. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we've been talking to Professor Risha Pretorius, who is a physiologist, head of department, and distinguished research professor in the Physiological Science Department and Faculty of Science at Stellenbosch University.